This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, we talk about live songs, the good, the bad, the ugly about them, and what really makes them cool and stick in our mind. Dr. Jay Silverstein made an amazing discovery in Egypt. It's a bathhouse. He did not find what he was expecting to find, though, and there was some strange statues to go with it. And are you okay with a joyride through a mall in a car? All of this and more on the Shift Daily Podcast. There are places that we love listening to music the most. There are times that we love listening to music the most. And sometimes the versions of the music we love to listen to changes a little bit. I don't know about you. I get absolutely sucked into a really good acoustic stripped down version of a song. That to me is, I love it. Alan Cross is here joining us, the ongoing history of new music and all things music. Um, Hey, Alan, how are you? Oh, doing well, doing well. The live versions of songs, the live albums, um, there's some magic to that, my man. And yet I also find certain scenarios where I think it's really distracting to hear the crowd in the background as well. Um, Where does live land for you? Uh, a lot of people, you know what, I, I would rather go to the show itself than have a recording of it. I have many, many live recordings. Some like the old kind go in with the, the band goes into the studio and freshens everything up and fixes all the mistakes. And then a bunch of official and unofficial bootlegs where it's warts and all. And I find, uh, I find myself, for whatever reason, partial to the original studio recording. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I do too. So let's start there and let's let's talk about the um, where lives are cool. When DVDs came out, Blu-ray in particular, and folks who had a big home theater sit down with this mega high-resolution screen and see the DVD of the concert with that live experience. Now, I that's never been something that I would do, but I get the magic behind it because the spectacle is just stunning. The camera work is stunning. Like, it's beautiful well, it, stuff. It depends on what you're watching. Now, I will um, recommend something here that I think is absolutely flawless. Yeah. And that's the, the DVD, the Blu-ray for Peter Gabriel's Secret World. Hmm. Uh, I've seen that both uh, live on DVD and I've got the CD version of it. And if you really want an excellent live experience, that's the one. That's the one I would go for. Uh, Eagles. I mean, the Hotel California on the stools. I mean, that became its own version of the song. It uh, it did. And that and part of the reason it became its own, own version of the song is because um, – that that particular DVD was used to demonstrate home home videos. Oh yeah, and it sounded so good, and everybody ran out and bought it. Uh, that recording was as close to flawless as you can possibly get. To expose how terrible some singers are and how amazing other singers are in well, these moments. You would you would think too that a lot of those <laughs> things uh, were you know like i say sweetened up in the in the studio a little, afterwards a little spent and polish afterwards i think so yeah now that was that was a dirty little secret i'm uh, i mean when you're playing live you are distracted by so many things everything is happening in real time you can't you can't be perfect so what you want to be able to do is uh, go back into the uh, into the studio afterwards 
this is a multi-track recording and uh, you will correct the mistakes. You will erase the bad guitar solo. You will erase where the drummer, um, you know, dropped the sticks and all that sort of stuff. So most of that sort of thing is, is uh, that, that was the way, you know, Kiss did it, the way Peter Gabriel, uh, the way, um, uh, yes, the way Peter Gabriel did it, the way Peter Frampton did it, everybody, you name a big live album, a classic live album from the past, and with the exception of maybe the Who Live at Leeds, uh, all of them were sweet in the studio. I will give credit, though, for a live album on a long road trip, when you can literally be with it, driving along and listening to it in the car on a live road trip. I mean, that is a really cool experience to kind of put yourself in it. But then again, that's that presence thing, right? Like you're you're with it, you're sitting listening to it, um, and I find that pretty cool. Okay, I'll give it to you there. And it has to be on a summer day with the windows rolled down and yes. everything turned out very, very loud. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love this. Alan Cross is here, live albums of all time. So what are some of the songs or albums? Because I, I do like to keep it distinct that sometimes the album might be junk, but there could be that one song that is mind-blowing that comes out of it. Is there is there anything that really gets you that that has really stood the test of time? Um, geez, that's not, I mean, we've, we've talked about the classic ones already, Who Live at Leeds, um, Frampton Comes Alive. Um, there's probably a couple of Pink Floyd early 1970s albums that are very good. Uh, one album that I did enjoy quite a bit when I was a kid was a, a Foghat Live album. Now, hmm. you know, Foghat, typical classical, classic rock band. Now, they did crank out a really good live album with uh, all their hits um, done in concert. So uh, it opens, I think, with a blues track, uh, All I Want to Do is Make Love to You. And uh, I, I can still sing it in my head. That's good. Slow Ride, obviously, being the one. I um, think it's the last song on the album. Yeah, probably smart for them to do it last, <laughs> make everyone stay to the end. Um, okay, so here's a couple that I, I wrote down that I thought were really impressive to me. Okay. MTV Unplugged, Nirvana, and that was became... Like the song. Uh, yes. As a matter of fact, that's a good one. Now, that uh, was uh, a one-take recording. That whole thing was done in one take. And uh, there was a version, before Kurt died, there was a version of All Apologies from that, uh, from that uh, performance that was circulating amongst radio stations. I'm pretty sure it was a, a promo-only thing. Now, that... Uh, live recording was made in November of 1993. Kurt is gone by April 1994. And uh, there were plans to release it. There always were plans to release it as a as a uh, as a as an MTV Unplugged record. And there were a lot of those at that uh, during that time. Uh, it just became much more poignant, much more sad, much more uh, emotional uh, after Kurt died. And when it was finally released, it it became something of a, of a talisman, something to hang on to Kurt by. And that's part of the reason I think it became as big as it did. Kind of the last thing anybody truly saw him do, really, right? right. Yeah, there, yes, it was, as a matter of fact. I, uh, I'm trying to think if it was, no, there were some live performances. There were some live performances in on a European tour uh, in uh, February and March of 1994. Uh, in fact, he was playing live up until about a month before he died. So it wasn't the last time anybody saw him, but it was certainly the last controlled uh, situation, you know, with a full studio and um, all that kind of recording gear available. I think that was probably the last time we saw him with that. 
Alan Cross here, live music. What are the live songs that you love? 877-399-9898. Okay, we just here on our AV club, which is our little movie club we do, we did uh, Johnny Cash. And what about Folsom, oh, I'm, Folsom I'm, Prison Blues? I'm going to tell you that uh, Live at San Quentin was the first album anybody ever gave to me. Oh, really? Yeah, because I was fascinated with the song A Boy Named Sue, and that's on that album. Wow. See, that's cool. And I, I think somewhere along the line, um, album number three, number four was Live at Folsom Prison. Yeah. And, and so when we were doing our conversation here, and this is sort of where this idea for this came from, we were, okay, what Johnny Cash songs should we play? And I said, well, Folsom Prison Blues would be one of them. Let's, let's do that. And here on the team, it was like, yeah, but we got to do the live version of it. You can't play the studio version of that one. It's got to be the live version. And it's sort oh, with, of- with- Right, with like, everybody cheering, all the convicts cheering, absolutely. Yeah, and they kind of jumped in on it here and there, and and stuff like that. So there are these little nuggets of goodness that that get mixed in on that. Is there any other ones that come to mind, Alan Cross? Um, where you have to listen to the live version? Yeah, maybe the live uh, version is better. Uh, well, okay, but uh, again, I'll come back to Peter Frampton, and Frampton comes alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the first time a lot of people heard songs like that, uh, like "Show Me the Way" and. Uh, do you feel and, and so on? Um, I, and I went back. That album was enough to sucker me in, and I went back to hear the studio versions. And the studio version did not; they just weren't very good compared to the live version. So, mm. you know what? Based on everything that I said at the beginning of the show, I'm beginning to talk myself out of it. <laughs> oh well, that's the way it goes. Um, Queen, uh, Live Killers, that whole Wembley um, thing. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that they wrote on the line in the liner notes was this was made without tapes or this was made there was there was something saying that this was totally live and there was no studio trickery in the in uh, used in this performance um which seems really quaint these days compared to the live albums that were coming that, that the live performances were getting today a lot of them are just backing tracks um that was an okay album um and that's as far as I'm willing to go. <laughs> well, and sometimes that is that is okay. We don't see it the same way today. There was one documentary, because we have access to these documentaries on Netflix, like Lady Gaga. Like, you get her vocal prowess in her shows. Um, but yes. I don't find that they have the same sort of magic, with the exception of the, actually the Queen stuff today, that most recent Queen documentary with all that live footage with Adam Lambert. I mean, I found that quite fascinating. I'm Lambert's doing a good job, but he's no Freddie Mercury. I'll yeah. just leave it at that. <laughs> I love it. I love it how direct you are. Are there any new artists uh, that really get you that that maybe should be doing more of this that have that skill that they're not taking advantage of it yet? Well, that's really interesting because what I would do as a new artist is I would try to record every single show and then I would release a live recording from that show to uh, my hardcore fans via Instagram or TikTok or something like that. Um, I'm trying to think of anybody I've seen recently with a live recording. And I, you know what? I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, well, I honestly am drawing a blank. Well, and if you look at it, I mean, I did some looking because I thought, okay, well, I mean, I would imagine, you know, Kiss is entertaining. So a live version to me, maybe a DVD, but unless you're watching Kiss, you know, there, I mean, you kind of lose the spectacle of Kiss, Motley Crue, all yeah. these big bands. I mean, they were about the spectacle, not really about it. So a recording of it seems kind of like, pfft, as far as I'm concerned. But then you do get into some of the other ones, like 
the doors, the Rolling Stones, and we haven't, I mean, there's some good stuff there, but it's not fantastic. So it seems to be particularly Metallica is another one that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what? We can go back to the Rolling Stones when they were playing at the Elma Combo in 1977. There's uh, that, those recordings are now out. And that's an interesting artifact. Sometimes you don't listen to the live recording for the music or the performance itself. You listen because it's a historical document of a time, of a, place and and time mm. and uh there are lots of, of of substandard sounding records that are actually important because of that and i would put the uh albums combo shows uh with the rolling stones and even love you live which contained some of the songs from those shows um would be something to go back to simply because it was a it was a it was a big deal for canadian music history uh woodstock i would throw on that too right uh, Woodstock would be one. Woodstock '69 yep. for sure. Mm-hmm. If you want to see, you know how awful Woodstock '99 was, there oh. are a couple of DVDs featuring that. Uh, there's that um, documentary on Netflix too, or one of those places that's also yes. just how dreadful it was. There is uh, a document of the Ramones' very last show in August uh, in Los Angeles in August 1996. Uh, that is uh, is worth having. Uh, U2 is actually very good in releasing live versions, and most of their stuff is pretty tight from the stage to begin with. So it's it's certainly uh, good to listen to. And um, maybe The Clash, live at Shea Stadium. Mm. Uh, again, The Clash, you know, at their peak, just before they're about to explode, opening for The Who. It's, it's kind of a neat thing to see. Alan Cross here on The Shift. I'm Shane Hewitt. What is your favorite live? If we had to pick one... I'm going to go Canadian, but if you had to pick one person who you wish you could see a live from, is there anyone comes to mind? I have one. I'll start. Mine, mine is Jim Cuddy on a stool from like a small room. I would love to okay. see that. I would like to see a full-blown show by the Headstones. Oh. <laughs> that would be really intense. Uncensored, unfiltered, yeah. unvarnished. I'll take it. Microphone flying into the audience, hitting people in the head. Exactly. I love it. Thank you so much for being here, Alan Cross. I appreciate you. You're very welcome. This is The Shift Podcast. We've had many very curious conversations um, conversations here on The Shift, and one of the most amazing ones that we received so much feedback from was our conversations about Egypt. And Dr. Jay Silverstein is an archaeologist, and Jay had joined us, I don't know, a few months ago, and really yeah. uh, gave us some cool insights of everything that we um, that we learned about Egypt and communication and even some language and how the imagery told so many stories. There was so much to be found uh, there. And now he's back again, joining us. Um, I, where are you at this time of day, Jay? Uh, yeah, good morning from Nottingham in England. So uh, oh, I'm actually good. just on my way to the university. I I um, feel like I, I feel like we should say right then Nottingham. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, uh, I don't Jay, speak that way either. <laughs> I well, hey, you never know. A couple of beers will do it to you. Jay Silverstein is an archaeologist, anthropologist, National Geographic explorer. Does so many cool things. You guys have been busy, Jay. How you doing? Good. Yeah, real good. Just back from Egypt last month. So um, yeah, very very productive. Um, set of discoveries in, uh, in December and January. Yeah, so tell us uh, what you guys found, because you found, um, I feel like it's kind of dirty, but you found a bathhouse. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, 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 we did find a bathhouse, uh, I think. 
we're, we're, we only partially excavated it. I could see it on satellite imagery, um, but when we started digging, it took a while to get down to it. So it was showing up in a satellite, uh, but the actual structure of the bathhouse was well over a meter below the surface. Um, so we found that it, and, and we dated it based on the ceramics to the Roman period, but I'm really curious to see how it, the excavation is going to develop from there. Um, like I said, I'm pretty sure it's a bathhouse. There are, are some other possible things it could be, but uh, but it looks like a bathhouse to me. Uh, do um, you find that as you dig deeper that sometimes you find uh, conflicting dates, or does that more lead you to sort of down the breadcrumb of what you discover when you dig down in these ruins like this in Egypt? Well, you, no, that's exactly right, because the level that I was digging at dated to the Ptolemaic period, so between the you know Alexander the Great and in Egypt, about 320 to to the you know the uh, end of the Ptolemaic dynasty with Cleopatra uh, in 30 BC. So I thought I was digging into that period. When I got into it, I found out it was actually from about the fifth century AD um, that the Romans had dug into this lower level to build the bathhouse. So so yeah, you have those type of confusions all the time. Huh. Bathhouse. What does a bathhouse look like 2,000 years ago? <laughs> Well, these type of bathhouses were circular. Um, they're, they're called a tholos bathhouse or, or tholos bath. They were circular and they were basically like a waiting pool. You could come, you could sit down. Um, above you would be um, a flow of water. So it'd be like taking a shower sometimes. There, there's a lot of variations to it, uh, but they were, they were really quite uh, you know, ornate and, and kind of decadent affairs uh, that I, I think we would appreciate in modern society if we brought them back. Um, they're, they're, they, the, the Romans really knew how to, you know, to enjoy life. And, uh, and actually, yeah. in this type of bathhouse, they inherited from the Greeks as well. So the Greeks had, had, had kind of developed it and were using it. Um, and then it carried well into the Roman period. And the Romans, of course, you know, um, took it to a next level. Uh, the, their bathhouses, the, the big complexes are, are absolutely fascinating places with heated water and cool wooden water. Uh, so you have different temperatures and, um, you know, uh, exercise facilities and all sorts of things going yeah. on. That's fascinating. So in bathhouses in today's world, we sort of look at them two ways, right? The old school bathhouses, maybe we see them in Western movies, stuff like that, where the cowboys would go and they could have a bath, uh, pay, you know, pay to have a bath, um, stuff like that. And then today they're kind of like sex clubs. We see in today's world more like that. And then, but really, if I think if I'm connecting the dots from so long ago, to what we have today. It would be more like the spa of today, not necessarily, um, you know, in today's world, sort of the sex club. But if you're talking about the Romans, it might have been a sex club for that matter because they, they were kind of wild. Oh, yeah. No, if you ever go to Pompeii, I mean, there's there's a, a well-preserved uh, brothel, um, you know, sex club area, and the, the mosaics and the paintings and are, are absolutely incredible <laughs> and, and graphic. Um you know, so and you know, sex has always been a, a preoccupation of humanity, and and as we developed culture and, and and complexity, we embedded that within our our complexity. So right next to this bathhouse, uh, there was a cache of uh, figurines, so little small clay statues, um, and and there were two types of statues in particular. One was this kind of uh, wild god. Uh, no, known as Bess, who runs around with a sword. He's kind of a dwarf. 
Um, and he's known as a protector of women, a protector of children. Um, but he was also blended with the Greek traditions. Um, he was a, a party animal also, so he liked to drink and, and, and get involved in debauchery. He was often seen naked. Um, the other set of figurines next to that was uh, from a, a god called Hippocrates, who was a, um, a version of the, of the god Horus, the hawk god, the falcon god, um, as, a, as a human child. Uh, and he kind of represented the, the, you know, the young pharaoh as the pharaoh was getting ready to, to assume authority. Uh, but this particular version of Hippocrates was him se- seated down with a, a giant erection. Um, and so the, the fertility cult aspect of it, um, you know, that people would probably have come here to, you know, if they were having trouble having children, if they were having, you know, like ancient Viagra, perhaps, um, mm-hmm. anything associated with, with you know, um, uh, with, with fertility. It's fascinating to, uh, to think that we really haven't come very far when you go back in time and, and you sort of look at where all these things were so long ago and then you fast forward to today i mean we i mean maybe i'm taking a leap here uh, jay but i mean in your archaeology your study of societies and and all that stuff with anthropology uh, does do you get constantly reminded that boy we were really not come very far no humanity hasn't changed at all really uh only in our technology a little bit of our philosophy our understanding of the universe and, and the world but the, the fundamental nature of, of us has not evolved. We, we, we stopped that you know, quite some time ago, I think. Um, you know, we, we still have all of our biological urges, the things that evolution gave us you know, for you know, reproduction and social interaction, uh, prone to violence, you know, prone to, you know, to peace. Uh, we have all those aspects and, and, and people had them back then. You, you, you realize that you could easy easily fit into an ancient society you know aside from the language barrier and some of the cultural behaviors it, you you wouldn't be far from home when you were living with these people yeah hand sanitizer i'd miss hand sanitizer <laughs> <laughs> that's one big thing for me okay so you started digging jay uh, silverstein is uh, is an archaeologist he's joining from england right now but he's doing a ton of work in egypt and he's found a what they believe to be as a roman bathhouse uh, you're digging down. How like how long does this? You find a spot, you go there, you you strike the uh, proverbial gold. Uh, how long will it take you to really get through all of this bathhouse? I guess there could be so many surprises and other places to go, kind of like a breadcrumb. But how long does that take? And when do you get your next real good look at at what this is? Uh, I'll be back. I think at the end of May. Uh, depending on how my teaching schedule goes. Um, so I have a team that will come back with me and we'll, we'll finish, I think, the bathhouse excavation, um, depending on, on what the size turns out to be. But the, the main part of the bath that we found so far, these, it could be a bigger complex. Sometimes they'd have his and her baths. And so we only have one bath right now. Um, there could be a second one. Um, but when I was digging there, I was actually looking for um, evidence about some ancient temples from the Ptolemaic period and, and from before, from, from the, um, the Persian period uh, and the dynasties just before the Persian period. So, so I want to continue my exploration. We found the walls. I mentioned those fertility figurines. Those date to the Ptolemaic period um, and, are, and were probably part of a temple complex. Um, so I want to expand that. 
um, and, and build on some of the discoveries that we've had there. The, the bathhouse was, was kind of an accident. I, was, I thought there was a sacred well there from the Ptolemaic period, and it turned out to be a Roman bathhouse that had been dug into the Ptolemaic period. So, um, so I'll be back at it. Uh, I, I expect, because of, the, of where we're working and the, and the evidence that we have so far, that we'll, we'll have pretty consistent discoveries for the next many years um, as we dig in this region. It's just very, there's a lot to learn. It's wild. I mean, it's, it's really kind of wild when you think about, um, I mean, you're getting that snapshot um, from from so long ago. This is this is really cool. Now, when we chatted last time, Jay, you sort of talked about hieroglyphs and, and the surprise lessons, right? The real subtle lessons that, that you discover down here. I mean, it's one thing to find a mummy. It's one thing to buy, to find fertility figures and those kinds of things. Have you found any of the subtleties like some of the drawings and messages and some of the stories yet? Have you gotten that far? Because um, that seemed to me to be really the most uh, curious part of all of it was to try to interpret um, that w when it's almost like these ancient people are kind of saying, hey, um, here we are. Here's our story. We've written it all down for you for you to find it. And now you're here. Go. And um, have you found any of that yet? Well, uh, last year we found uh, part of a temple that, monument that had the the name of uh, a pharaoh who only ruled for one year, so a name of Samuthas, who ruled from um, three ninety to three ninety or three ninety one to three ninety BC. Uh, so, so that's that's been intriguing. That's why we've kind of been pursuing what this temple is and trying to figure out um, more information about it. Um, Interestingly, I mentioned uh, that the, we had that fertility cult. Mixed in with those figurines were a lot of, of catapult stones. Uh, the city was destroyed during a, a rebellion against the Greeks, where the Egyptians tried to retake their country from the Greeks um, and, and kick the Ptolemies out and put their own pharaoh in. Um, so that was a really dynamic period, and and this rebellion is talked about on the Rosetta Stone. So it's that that contrast from here we have stories written by historians, stories that are written on the Rosetta Stone um, in in three languages. The Greeks wrote it in three languages to make sure everybody could read. You know how important it was that the pharaoh was taking control of Egypt again, that he was putting down the rebellion and destroying any of the rebels who who stood against him. And Rosetta Stone talks about those things. Uh, so finding the physical evidence for the text that's on the Rosetta Stone is actually it was actually pretty thrilling. It's it's never this level of of discovery of the violence that of the rebellion talked about on the Rosetta Stone has never been found before. There has been some wow. graffiti and things like that from some of the soldiers who fought during the war um, on both sides had had carved into some temple walls that they were involved in the battles, uh, but we never found the actual. I, we found. A destruction layer and a rebuilding. We found dead bodies and weapons, um, all associated with that 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 great rebellion that happened in Egypt. Wow, that's crazy to think that the catapult, like the big stones that got launched in there, are still sitting there, right? That's um, yeah, yeah. Actually, they're kind of they're small size. It, it's um, it, it's a, a type of catapult called a palantone, and it's the the stone's actually about the size of your fist. Uh, but but it was, yeah, quite an effective weapon, though. Uh, there are some bigger yeah. ones as well. They, they use bigger ones too, but this was a real portable one that they could they could bring to a battlefield pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Jay Silverstein here, archaeologist, anthropologist, and uh, overall cool guy. 
Um, uh, joining us from the UK, the uh, that's just my opinion. That's not an actual, uh, just a proper designation, just so you know. Um, now, in, in the spirit of we have not come very far, you've also been doing some research on remains in general, and there's a story of Charles McAllister from Sa- Seattle. He was KIA in uh, 1918. They didn't know what happened. You think you found him. So just flashback to the Egypt thing about, you know, war, destruction, and trying to you know find bodies and all those things. Fast forward to just a hundred years ago or so, and you're kind of going through this all over again. Except this one touches back to home country a little bit for you, and um, and uh, you're, you're you've hit a bit of a wall in this one. Yeah, no, it's um, yeah, it's frustrating. It, there's there's no question scientifically that it's Charles McAllister. Uh, the only question is with the U.S. government and the bureaucracy. Um, accepting that identification. The, the science is, huh. is sound. And I have an article coming out actually this month uh, that lays out all the evidence um, to explain why it's Charles McAllister. But the, the, yeah, the story was there were two soldiers that were found by a French archaeologist um, and they got turned over to our laboratory in Hawaii. And one of the soldiers had his name embossed on his wallet. So he was very easy to identify. We got his medical records and it, it matched up and we got some DNA from a relative and it matched up. So he was identified and, and given an honorable burial. The other soldier, they said, was um, unidentifiable. And I had worked on the case back then. I was working for the laboratory then. And and I, I, I always felt it was solvable because he had some real distinctive clues on him. He had a, um, a couple of uniform buttons from the, the second regiment of the Washington National Guard, which was, he was, he was out of Seattle. And um, he, he had been sent to France in 1917, the end of 1917, was nationalized into the first division of the U.S. Army. So from the National Guard, he became part of the U.S. Army uh, and then was killed in action, like you said, in 1918. So, um, you know, I, I just began looking at, at where he was found, the date that the other guy he was found with was killed, when the battle happened at the location where he was found. And I just put the, the geography together with the um, records from the Nash, uh, Washington State National Guard and, and the biological information. And I began looking at the possible people he could be who were missing in action. Uh, and, and the list you know, was, was about 30 people from the state of Washington. Uh, I quickly narrowed that down to about five people, and then I quickly narrowed that down to one. Um, and I tracked down uh, a relative, his great-grandniece, who was living in Montana at this time. And it, it, it was actually, I, I called her up and I said, you know, hi, my name is, you know, Jay Silverstein, my independent investigator, because the government agency didn't want me working on a World War I case, so I had to do it on my own time. Uh, and I said, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to uh, find family members from uh, World War I, MIA, named Charles McAllister. And I was talking to a phone machine at this point. But then this woman answers the phone and she says, oh, I thought it was a, you know, a solicitor. But when you said the name Charles McAllister, nobody would know his name unless it was really an investigator. And th- this woman, uh, who was in her 80s, uh, said, give me a minute. And she went downstairs and she came back and she had framed up on the wall the last letter he wrote to his sister, who was her Whoa. great-grandmother. Um, and, and so she read me his letter that he wrote from New York as he, just as he's getting on board a ship, the Abraham Lincoln, to sail to France. Wow. And, yeah, and, and, and it just brought, brought tears to my eyes. I'll tell you, you know, he, he's like, don't worry about me. We'll be okay. There's a million of us going over there. We'll, you know, we're really? fine. 
Uh, and of course, that was the last last letter that that he wrote. And, and but she had, you know, she we still wanted him home. You know, that this had been passed down through her family from her her grandmother to her mother to her, and she had it framed on the wall. And 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 she's still waiting. She's you know she's in her eighties and she's still waiting for him Amazing. to be buried. Um, but I, I was a whistleblower when I worked for the U.S. government, and I made some enemies. And I think that that. Um, because I made the identification that they they really don't want to acknowledge it. And, and yeah, I there might be some narrative that this doesn't fit with, right? There's yeah, there's a, a big narrative. I, I am in some some talks with the government right now to try to resolve this, and uh, you know, along with some other issues left over. But um, but this one just there's just no call for this. This is ridiculous. This is just a tragedy, a human tragedy of a man whose whose remains have been sitting on a, in a box in Hawaii since 2004 who died for his country and deserves to be buried and his family deserves to have him buried while they're still alive. You know, where did um, they think that he so died? Just, uh, he, he died in France in near a town named Ploissy. Um, so the article, I have pretty good maps. I know exactly where the archeologists found him. They were, they were uh, digging for, to, to do some construction for a park, I think. Um, wow. they, they found him and then they, they turned the body over the two bodies over to the, um, United States military because they had the U.S. military equipment, so they knew they were American. Uh, and then they kind of sat there for a while until one of our investigators in 2004 um, was over in Europe and, and was told that these remains were there. And he brought them back to to Hawaii. Absolutely so, fascinating. Yeah, it's just it really is. It, it's it's an amazing story. And, and you know, it's funny because you you look at a guy like this, you look at his his face because I have a, a nice picture of him that the family gave me. And the guy has such a broad smile. He was such, you know, he, he, he just radiates this like really affable, you know, friendly sort of fellow. And to think that, you know, he, he died there and, and was, you know, you know, has, has just been left and, and was largely forgotten until yeah. just recently. Well, this must be different um, for you, Jay, because you don't get closure in Egypt, right? Like it's this sort of never ending thread of forward momentum, study, study, study. And then. Then you get this that happens, the story of a U.S. soldier, and you actually get a personality. You get a name. You get a family. You get history, and you get closure, closure on a story. I mean, your Egypt work will never be done, right? But this one you oh, get no. to be complete on, and so this must be quite special. Yeah, well, I hope to get complete on. The government, it's been three years I've been fighting with the government over this now. And they just refuse to look at the evidence. They say, oh, we don't do World War One." And I said, well, you've got a guy's body. You don't really have a choice. You have to do something with it. And then they say, well, the DNA is not good enough. I said, well, it's not based on DNA. The guy has such a unique dental pattern. He, he has his wisdom teeth, for instance, on the lower jaw. And uh, on both sides, he has his wisdom teeth. Then he's missing the next two teeth. And his military record from World War One shows that exact dental pattern that the skeleton shows. You know, he was five foot wow. three. All the biology mat matches, the, the DNA matches. It's, it's not the, the most, the strongest, you know, ma um, frequency. It's, it's, it's a common type of DNA that he has, this mitochondrial DNA. About 50% of, of European uh, males have it. Um, so it's not strong, but it, it matches. It's consistent. It, you know, it doesn't exclude hmm. him. But all the other evidence is, is overwhelming. And so there's no, absolutely no question scientifically that this is Charles McAllister. Um, I just can't get anyone in the government to to look at the evidence even or, or to acknowledge it. Uh, they just keep making oh, excuses. 
Well, Jay, yeah, I, I look forward to finding out as you do how you do with this and where this goes next. It's fascinating. Why we're going to have to leave it there. God, I could talk about this for hours. It's fascinating. <laughs> so the Egypt work, the uh, soldier work. Um, thank you so much for being here and sharing your story with us again. I appreciate you. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with outlet malls? I love outlet malls. Outlet malls are incredible. However, there's a few obstacles, but first before I go over those, they always have the best food courts. They always have the restaurants that nobody else has. Arby's, as an example, there's an Arby's in the outlet mall by Calgary. There's basically no other Arby's in the entire city, but there's one in that outlet mall. And then you Mm -hmm. have good selection. You know, it's a fun, it's like a thing that family does on a weekend. I loved going to the outlet mall. The only issue with outlet malls is that they're outside of the city. And as someone who doesn't, uh, you know, drive, I don't get to go to the outlet ball very often, which is unfortunate, especially this weekend, because I have a friends and family coupon at the Nike store that I won't be able to use because there's no way I'm getting up to the cross. Is the Nike store opening a shop? I know, but they're not owned by Nike. What? Nike franchises out its retail locations, but not its outlet ones. So when you buy sneakers from a Nike store in a mall, you're actually buying from someone who's licensed to sell the product, it's not actually Nike. So really? if you bought a pair of shoes at the Nike store at Chinook, you would not be able to return them at the Nike store at Cross Iron Mills. Can you and I open a Nike store? No. There's, I believe there is only two companies in Canada that have the rights to market themselves as uh, Nike and the ownership group is billions of dollars. I think it's Fox something sports. I can't remember off the top of my head. You'll see it on the receipt. Oh, well, nah. I think that we need to work harder then. I would. Hey, I'd love to do it. We could make billions. Billions and billions. Billions and billions. I like outlet malls. I think they're super fantastic. They're usually really spread out, though. It's a lot of walking. Like, you cannot get into yeah. an outlet mall, get in and out, and go to a couple of stores. Well designed because it keeps you there for an afternoon. And there's usually weird public art around the mall. Like in Calgary, there's the oil rig. There's the there's like that big oil rig that mm-hmm. looks like it's pumping oil out of the ground in the middle of the mall. That is, I mean, and there's a Tim Hortons attached to it. Maybe that's where See, the coffee comes from. You're giving people bias, Ryan, because there's also there's windmills. There's there's, windmills, yeah. there's all kinds of the the green energy. There's the you know the the history of Alberta and the oil derricks with the fake grape juice thing that looks like oil squirting out of the ground. And all of yeah. the mills, Vaughn Mills, Tawasson Mills, all of those places are have, you know they're really cool. They're really well designed. Anyway, uh, this show is not brought to you by that company, so we will move along. Nope. 1.3 million square feet of retail space, 200 retail stores, restaurants, entertainment outlets, and more, and millions of dollars worth of products. That might be why somebody decided to steal it. Some bold thieves decided to crash their car through the Vaughn Mills Mall in the middle of the night for a robbery. Although, dumb criminals. York Regional Police released surveillance video of a black Audi smashing the front doors of Vaughn Mills Mall, driving through the mall and out another set of doors. We've all heard of curbside pickups at retail stores, but nothing quite like this. 
it's an audacious crime. And, uh, you know, it's remarkable for that. 110 Wednesday morning, surveillance video shows a car heading for Vaughn Mills entrance number six. Two suspects in a black Audi drove onto the property of the mall here. They then proceeded to drive through the mall and made their way to an electronics store. The suspects then got back into their vehicle, drove through the mall again, but this time broke their way through another glass door on the other side of the mall and escaped the mall. The remarkable video makes the shopping trip look easy, though a security expert says it was well planned. Clearly these suspects put some time in there surveilling the mall. They knew exactly what the time and distance was going to be from the entrance they crashed into first to get to the electronics store that they targeted. The driver passes one store after another and the lit up children's play area. Destination, the Source Electronics Store, where they broke in and got away with an undisclosed amount of merchandise. The store was closed for a few hours for a cleanup, but later reopened. Thieves chose the electronics store and not a jewelry store two doors down. Okay, uh, first of all, thievery etiquette. Um, that will global do Sean O'Shea, by the way. So the thievery etiquette, I mean, you're already breaking in and stealing stuff. The least you could do is go out the same door you came in. I think that's just considerate. Yeah. Right? That's a, yeah. yeah. If I mean, if you're planning, you're going to do less damage to the car if you drive through the one you already broke. I don't think it was their car, right? I, you know what? Very valid. They probably didn't care. But also etiquette, if you're going to steal something, use your own car. No, oh, I'm asking a lot. Of that's no. Come on now, we can't be now. stupid thieves. Um, okay, so there doesn't appear to be any significant amount of damage inside of the mall. Both entrances and the electronics store were robbed, of course, damaged. In an update the, earlier in the afternoon on Wednesday, police said the vehicle had been located, adding it will be examined for evidence. Anyone with information is asked to contact police or Crime Stoppers, of course. Okay, now we are not promoting thievery. We are not promoting vandalism, anything like that. No. I have questions. How amazing would it be to drive through glass doors? <laughs> okay, it's it's a fantasy that like everybody has. I mean, uh, we there in the most recent episode of The Last of Us, there is a scene where somebody drives through a gate, and my roommate literally said, "God, I want to do that." Right? Exactly. It's just like it's it's why you can do it in video games, but you probably shouldn't do it in real life. Not good. So no. not and, in real life. Yeah. Okay. So agree with you on that one. Okay. If you could have a day in a mall in a sporty little car and not have to care. I mean, tell me you wouldn't drive like right through, like if there was a Build-A-Bear stand and you could drive right through all the stuffies and they go flying over the car, mm -hmm. like movie style, burn some donuts by winners, right? Like go to the food court and race yep. in circles, you know, from Thai Express to KFC to Arby's. Like... You can't tell me that that would not be the one of the most fun. Like, this is a video game waiting to happen. That would not be one of the most fun things ever. There's a reason why one of the greatest Mario Kart tracks of all time is Coconut Mall. A go-kart race just through a shopping mall. I it's just that. It just makes for an awesome racetrack. I'm pretty sure there's an episode of Top Gear about this, too. Now, I'm not promoting thievery, and I'm not promoting vandalism, but i got to tell you, You're these not. guys pretty much lived out everybody's dream. They did. They probably won't um, be thinking about that, though, when they're in jail. But why did they stop for electronics only? And why didn't they... I, there's a, if there was a jewelry store right beside... Maybe they knew they didn't have a lot of time. They had to pick maybe. one of two things. Jewelry 
and electronics. So it's probably easier to resell the electronics than it is the jewelry. But if you're already know you're going to be on camera yeah. driving through a mall, I feel like I would probably go for the more high ticket items. I would agree. And that also fits in your pockets. Um, but it is possible that the jewelry cabinets have different alarms on them. Than the, yeah, than the source. Yeah. That could be a thing, right? I mean, if you're stealing TVs, it's basically you broke in the mall, right? You know what I mean? No, yeah. Hmm. Um, I love it though. I got to tell you, <laughs> I really pretty do. Good, are you okay? It's pretty fun. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. Uh, pretty fun that should be like a prize you know how radio stations give away prizes like you won two thousand dollars for your next trip to mexico like those kinds of things that's amazing right how cool is that Fantastic. great prize excellent prize love that you know it'd be amazing you get to drive this sports car through that mall <laughs> that's it you don't take anything <laughs> home with you <laughs> yeah count me in son count me in oh god even a motorbike because then you can do escalators come on Ooh, now you're Paul Blart Mall Cop it. You're on a Segway. At least let me settle for a Segway. <laughs> <laughs> this is terrible. We are absolutely endorsing violence. Do not do this. <laughs> no. Do not believe us. Please don't. Are you okay with being a planner? Being a planner, yeah. I'm kind of, it's like a crutch. I need to have a plan. I, I even feel weird that this weekend I don't, I have one thing planned and I don't have everything else around it planned. I know I need to go to a race that's not inside of a shopping mall. It's an actual race with cars that are on a track, by the way. I know. Uh, but I don't know what time to get there. I don't know how many of my friends are going like, and I, that kind of stuff weighs on my mind and drives me crazy. So it's almost like I'm too much of a planner. I don't think that's the meaning of planning. I think it's more about like, I'm going to live in um, Mexico one day and I'm going to have a house that's in a hut over the oh, water. Long-term planner. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I try not to think that far ahead because I have no idea what's coming in the future. So I like to go weekend by weekend. There was a time when Ryan and I were in a conversation and Ryan said uh, something like, I hope this happens. And I remember I said to Ryan, I said, hope is one of the most beautiful things in the world that we all need more of. It's also the worst plan ever. <laughs> and yeah. it's very true. And it's a good thing to remind ourselves. Now, how much do you need to plan? And planning comes in handy. And we're not just talking only about lottery stories here. But there is a, um, oh, God, is this the, oh, my God, I know what clip this is. The, yeah, you know when you win is. the lottery, though. What would you do? I mean, we've heard so many stories about people that they spend the money, they go broke, they don't get advice, they don't know what's happening. They go buy a car, they go on a trip. They, that's what they do, right? Like, I mean, I would be tempted as well. I would probably get my pizza delivered and not go for takeaway. That's where I would start. That spend the extra four bucks. This is one of the most famous lottery winning moments ever. It's from the States. A Fox reporter goes up to a man and says, what would you do if you won? And this was like a billion dollars, a big one, if you won the lotto. Can I ask you what your lucky numbers are? Uh, I'm going to pick 14, 24, 2, 7, and 15. Uh, those are your lucky numbers. Can I tell you what, do you know your chances of winning? 
slim to none. Slim to none, you're right. Let me tell you, it's one out of 292 million. What do you think about that? I knew it. You knew it. <laughs> your, your numbers are lucky, though, am I right? I hope so. I hope so. Can I ask you, if you won all the money, what would you do with it? Bunch of hookers and cocaine. Oh, okay, that's not good. <laughs> we were hoping for a different answer. Okay, that's not good. Um, and we also do not um, recommend hookers and cocaine, just saying. No. Um, now, if you are a planner, like you could say that guy is a planner. He's planning what to do with his money. Now mm-hmm. Canada has its own lotto planner as well. A man in Edmonton won the lottery, and he waited for half a year to step up before claiming his prize. Why would he do that? So he could get a plan in order when he got the cash. Everyone put your hand up if you think Ryan O'Donnell would go straight to the Lego store. Well, or... yeah, okay. Of course I would go straight to the Lego store. I am aware of that. I can't even, I would go that hour to pick up the money. Six months? That's a ridiculous amount of self-restraint. And keep it quiet. And keep it quiet. Don't tell anybody. Oh. According to the Daily Hive, Semiraja, Semiraja stepped forward last month to claim a $1 million Western Max prize. He's held on to the ticket since June 21st, 2022. Six months. Wow. Through Christmas, through the holidays, so the most expensive paranoid time of the year, too. To lose the ticket. Yeah. Every day, every morning, every day, every night, I would wake up, I would look for it, make sure it's there. Ugh. Raja discovered his win the day after the draw, but he told Western Canada Lottery Corporation, the WCLC, that he waited to claim his prize because he wanted to speak with financial advisors to come up with a plan first. He won exactly by matching the numbers 22, 27, 32, 35, 40, and 47. I couldn't do it. Not to mention it's half a year of interest that he gave up. Like, I don't, like, take the money. Put it in a basic account that's not even insured. At least you have the money, and it will generate a bunch of interest. A million dollars will give you a bunch. Yeah. Yeah. I, you probably I give probably... $15,000. Probably. I mean, also, I mean, we win the lottery. What's 15 grand, right? Uh, but No. Uh, this is yes, why you're I never you going could... to... A dollar's still worth a dollar, even if you have a million of them, Ryan. Yes, yes, I I know. And I should probably clarify, yes, of course I'd go to the Lego store on day one. I would also put all of the money into savings. But, uh, you know, I respect the self-restraint. There's, And I would also uh, go to lawyers and, 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 you know, planners to be like, hey, what can I do here? Hey, should I invest? Hey, can I start a business? Blah, blah, blah. But waiting six months? Uh, No. What if you, what if you died? You didn't tell yes. anybody. And then the yes. ticket just sat there on your bedside table. Like Nobody in your estate mm. would inherit the money because you didn't yep. take it. Yeah, I see. This is too much. This is, yeah, I couldn't do, no, I wouldn't do it this way. But good for him. Not he got to the mention, money. He didn't die. You can't roll around in it. Yeah. Or lay on it like Huel and Breaking Bad. I got to do exactly. it, man. And he just lays on it and sleeps. That's the best. <laughs> What did you say? Is this is less comfortable than I thought it would be, or something like that? Yeah, I love that. Are you okay with the zoo? Ooh, oh, that's a big one. I love the zoo. The zoo's awesome. Mm-hmm. Oh no, he's getting all the animal sound effects ready. Uh, I am. Yeah, not. I love the zoo. Calgary Zoo, top notch. Toronto Zoo. Amazing. I haven't been mm. to any other zoo in Canada, but the aquariums in Vancouver and Toronto are also wicked. 
yeah, I love it. It's a great place. Conservation. Cows. All of the above. Um, zoos can be an amazing place for a day of animal conservation fun and learning. And monkeys. Monkey! Monkey! Monkey with massive testicles! <laughs> um, what show is that from, Ray? That's an episode of uh, Top Gear when they're in, I believe they're in Colombia for that. Or no, they're in Vietnam in that episode and they're driving through and he sees a very large monkey. Well, high five for the uh, massive testicles. Um, okay, well, here's the thing about the zoos, right? I mean, I, I don't, I'm not keen on the animals in captivity thing. I'm really not. But there is so much magic for kids to learn and see those animals and be there. In this future world of VR, I think that might be changing for sure. Um, but one zoo in the United States is going through all of this right now. Mystery after mystery with no end in sight. Just this week, two monkeys were stolen from their enclosure. The Dalit Zoo is still searching for two missing emperor tamarind monkeys that they believe were taken from their enclosure. But just into our newsroom, Dallas police have shared this picture of a person they're looking for in connection with this case. If you recognize this man, you're asked to please contact DPD. And this is a picture of one of the missing monkeys. Zoo officials say they discovered yesterday that the habitat had been intentionally compromised. Dallas police have an active investigation going. And of course, this comes after other incidents at the zoo earlier this month. Now, Ryan, um, they found out, they found the monkeys after they went they, missing. They did. They, they found them in an abandoned home in Dallas and uh, inside of just a closet. So the monkeys have been found, but the person who took the monkeys has not. Uh, so there you go. Monkeys in a closet, uh, kind of where this ends. Uh, when I went to the Smithsonian Zoo in Washington, D.C., the orangutans just like walk over you. They have cables and their their enclosure is above you. It's wide open. If they ever would jump down, they could walk out. There's no gates on the zoo. It's wild. But it's still kind of cool. So uh, text messages came in, couple here. Um, the first story about driving through a mall. This robbery reminds me of the movie Italian Job in Turin with the minis. Oh, Mini Cooper oh. in a shopping mall? Hello. Amazing. It's a go-kart. Come on. Yes. Love that. Um, also, if you win the lottery, a large-scale lottery prize, you want to find out about your friends, just ask to borrow a few bucks for the people in your life, see what happens before they find out that you won a million dollars. That's good advice from Steve, too. I like that. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.